Hey, good morning. Good morning. Hey, uh, we're continuing our study in the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 22, and I'm loud, right? And uh, so uh, last week we, um, we had started uh, verse 1 of chapter 22, and we had talked about uh, trust and God building a community of people and how trust is absolutely essential for a community to thrive, right? Uh, relationships, God has created us to be a relationship type people, right? Relational with one another. And when trust is compromised, that dynamic is broken. Um, you can ask yourself this morning, uh, you think about the people whose uh, relationship that you have, that you're connected to, that is the weakest, it's probably built on the lack of trust. And then those that are the strongest, you would say, I trust that person with my life. Right? Husbands would say this of their wives, wives of their, of the, of their husbands, those very same things. Right, uh, uh, And it's all predicated on trusting one another. Well, last week in Exodus chapter 1, I know this isn't you know, a hot spot sermon. You know, we're talking about stealing and this, that, and another. But when we read through the portion of Scripture that we studied last week, it wasn't, God wasn't uh, uh, so uh, caught up in restoring lost property as God was in restoring lost people. And in the verses that we covered last week on six different uh, occasions, the term restitution was mentioned in that scripture. And uh, multiple times we had the, the uh, victim, the one that was stolen from or taken from, and then you had the perpetrator. And the, the perpetrator's responsibility under the ordinance of God was to make restitution. And we talked about you know, uh, the double payment and of recompense and so forth. But to really clarify all of it, when we begin to understand what the word restitution meant in the Hebrew, it literally meant to make peace with or to cause to be at peace. And so it was the responsibility of the violator to make peace with the individual that they had victimized. And the whole story, the whole portion of Scripture was screaming out this idea from the heart of God that he wanted his children to have peace. And he had constituted or built within the law a response in the law to these violations that would what? Ultimately bring about peace amongst the violators and the victims. This was God's effort to redeem and to restore all parties in involved in the situation. And you and I understand that because God has done something very similar to that in your life and in my life. That is, He has paid the double payment of restitution, of recompense, for you and I to be restored. We're the violators to be restored back to our relationship with God. Amen? Every one of us should be excited about the fact and the truth of that principle. That God did that. He was the one that paid the price of recompense to bring us back to Him in peace, to make peace. The Prince of Peace paid the price that you and I might have peace. That's where we're at. Well, today we're going to get into some very sensitive scripture. I don't know if you guys, you should know if you've been coming to the uh, uh, TDC for any amount of time, you should know, you know, we're basically the next verse kind of church, right? We're studying the Scripture. The Scripture reveals God. That's what we want. 
We want to know who God is. We want to know what the scripture says about God. So if you're a next verse kind of guy like I am, and you've read ahead, you know we're going to be touching into some really sticky stuff today. Some flypaper type scripture, right? And I had a, my mentor, my spiritual mentor, the theologian that I looked to for much of my guidance in my life, one Harold Erickson told me, he said, Trent, uh, you may want to keep this in the fast lane. You may, uh, you, you, you may want to keep us in the fast lane. And, he, and then he gave me uh, this piece of advice. He said, less is more. <laughs> right, right. And uh, Harold, are you out there this morning? Raise your hand. There he is right there. The great uh, theologian right next to Charles Spurgeon and the greats of our, of our time. Right there. But uh, so what we're going to look at is we're going to look at some scripture. We're going to kind of work our way through it. And uh, what we're going to see in this scripture is once again, God's heart being revealed through some scripture that sometimes makes us uncomfortable because of, of what's being said, because we don't necessarily understand context. And uh, ultimately we see God's great effort, even involved in this scripture, of um, rescuing, restoring, and uh, preventing harm within uh, the society that he is establishing amongst his people. Okay, So bear with me as we get into some pretty sensitive stuff. And uh, I'll, I'll keep in mind that we do have... Um, young people in the sanctuary this morning, but we can't duck and hide the scripture. You know what I'm talking about? We can't hide from it. The scripture is what it is, and God has revealed this to us. We just have to work our way through it. You know what I mean? And sometimes it makes us uncomfortable, and if it does, it is what it is, and we just have to be uncomfortable with it. And so uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 22. And we're actually going to be, we'll read a large portion of this. And uh, not right now, but as we go through the, the, this portion of Scripture. Because it is somewhat self-explanatory, some of it is not. But I'm going to start in uh, verse 16. And let me say this. Initially when you read this verse, you're not, it can, it can kind of throw you off kilter right off the bat. Uh, we're talking about seduction. We're talking about a young virgin. We're talking about uh, predatorial uh, activities and whatnot. And the reason, and as we read this scripture, this stuff God isn't just speaking out of the ether as though there's not a place for it to apply. Typically when God says something regarding a matter, it's because the matter is prevalent. Or the matter is happening. You know what I'm talking about? He's just not going to address something that has no significance. So when we read these things and when we talk about this predatorial instinct, these predatorial actions that are taking place in this first verse, we understand that probably coming out of the culture in which they lived for 400 years, the Egyptian culture, this was probably common. And God says, not in my family. This will no longer be common. Because there's a value that I place on these women that maybe other cultures did not place on women. And I will protect them. And my ordinances and my laws are to establish a level of value to these women that maybe other cultures did not apply to women. I do, says God. And when you read it in Scripture, you understand how he applies these, these different values. So let's pray and then we're going to work our way through this Scripture, okay? Amen? Amen? Amen. All right, okay. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, give us a spirit to receive from you this morning from your word. Lord, we just want to see you and understand you 
And I think, Lord, when we see you and understand you, it just changes us. It changes the way we pray. It changes the way we approach you. When we know you're a God of compassion and you declare it to be so. So, Father, may we fix our eyes, Lord, on the truth of who you are that is found within the pages that we study of of your word. We bless you and we thank you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen. Okay, Exodus chapter 22, verse 16 and 17. And, uh, And here we go. It says, if a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price, and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for the virgin. All right. First of all, there's a couple things I just want to address right off the bat, because this isn't as foreign as you might think it is foreign. Uh, The idea of seduction in the Hebrew, it literally means, man, when I read this, I was like, oh, man, this is happening even today. It means to deceive, listen, to persuade, to flatter, to make one silly. And the moment I read that, I thought, oh, my goodness, is this not the standard approach that predatorial people have in relationships regarding uh, young women and whatnot, their attempts to, to flatter, to deceive? I mean, it literally is the definition of fishing, isn't it? And that's the reason we see, uh, and when I say fishing, you guys know what I'm talking about, pH, right? Right? And, and, and that, that's the reason uh, you see this stuff. This stuff is still taking place today, man. You see people who are pulled into these uh, relationships, these online relationships. You and I have read stories where, where people were seduced, flattered. Uh, uh, some individual with predatorial aspirations have, has engaged uh, uh, someone who is vulnerable because of a, a deficiency or a need in their own heart, whether it be emotional or whatever it might be. They're, they're so desperate or so desiring to be in a relationship that they put down all their guards and they embrace whoever's on the other line to be whoever they claim to be and all of a sudden at the end of the day they find out that nothing that was true that none of that was true and their bank account is short five ten fifty twenty fifty hundred thousands I mean thousands and thousands of dollars I mean we see this stuff all the time you hear these stories all the time And God is establishing something right here, right off the bat, because he understands that there are people, and listen, there will be people in your life. Now, it may not look like this, but there will be people in your life that your your, uh, walls, your protection, those barriers cannot just be put down. You will engage people in your life who have in their hearts a predatorial uh, uh, element about their person. And that individual will seek to take advantage of. That individual will seek to manipulate. That individual will seek to deceive. And so uh, we have to be aware and cognitive of these types of things, right? That we just can't just go out there uh, into a society with complete blinders on and not be aware that these things are actually taking place. And this is what the scripture says. It says that if he sleeps with her, and she has no plans of being married, right? She has not pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price. 
and she shall be his wife. Now, this bride price thing, you and I, you and I are thinking, this is kind of weird, right? This is kind of primitive. This is kind of primitive talk, right? This, what's this bride price thing? Well, I think this whole bride price concept is, says a lot more about us as Americans and a lot less about them. What, what this says about, about Israel is that they had established a great sense of value in regards to relationships between men and women. And so there was going to be a significant uh, 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 response to this individual's predatorial instincts, this bride price. And this bride price basically would have to be given on behalf of this predator, if you will, to establish that he had the resources and the means to take care of this girl that he had manipulated and tricked through seduction. Not only that, he would have to then compensate the family whom this young lady belonged to, who was losing a part of their family and a productive member of their family. So this individual had to come forth. He's on the hook, man. He had to come forth and he had to drop this bride price to pay for this predatorial instinct that he had or predatorial behavior he had fleshed out against this young lady. Are you with me? Let me say this. If this principle was being applied today, this type of activity, if every dude knew going into whatever venue he went into that if he was wanting to play his game and bring her home, that on the other side of, of sunrise, that cat was going to pay for the rest of his life, we wouldn't be having a lot of the stuff that are taking place in our society today. That's just a reality. There is a severe repercussion to this individual's actions. God said this is serious stuff. Serious stuff. She is valuable. You will not treat her like this. Not my daughter. That's a powerful thought and concept when you see God through that prism. Protecting her, the vulnerable one. That may not have been protected in other cultures. But then this is what the scripture says. It says in verse 17, it says this. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for the virgins. You, get to, you see that? Let me, let me say this, and some of you have actually experienced this, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not throwing anything out there at anybody. I'm just covering this scripture, and I'm just trying to be as clear as I possibly can. It is what it is. When I was growing up, and even a generation before me, if a young lady were to get pregnant, by a young man and whatnot, and they were not married. You know the first response of the culture was? What, what? Get married, wasn't it? The dad. The dad would go to the, to the dude, to whoever, whatever. So said, no, you're marrying my daughter. And the dad thought he was doing something good, didn't he? He's, and, and the reality, the vast majority of the time, it wasn't even about the daughter. It was about the reputation of the father. And so the father was trying to protect himself. He didn't want shame brought on the family. So he goes to little Joe over and he says, Joe, you're marrying Beth. You're marrying her. Shotgun wedding. You know what I'm talking about? That's straight up, right? That's how it went down. And many times, because the father wasn't really engaged in the best interest of his daughter, he had her marrying an individual who was deceptive, manipulating, predatorial. And he had cast the lot of his daughter's life in, in, in with this cat. What God does for his children is he gives the right 
to the father to look at his daughter who has been wronged, who has been manipulated, who has been deceived. God gives the father the right to inject himself for the best interest of the daughter and to look at that cat who had done those things and say to him, she's off limits to you. Two wrongs don't make a right. And let me say this to you dads out there, and I hope you understand what I'm talking about. And I hope you never have to experience this. But if your daughter were to ever come home and she say to you, this is the situation, Dad, and she, she stays biblical with you and says, I'm with child, right? She used those, I'm with child. For the sake of her life, for the sake of her heart, do not cast her away to the care of an individual who doesn't truly love her, who won't truly make amends, make amends, and do right by her and do right by God. Don't just throw her out there and say that you need to get married, you need to do the right thing. Two wrongs, it never works out. And God says right here, right off the bat, I don't know what they've done in Egypt. We're not doing that in Israel. And the dad is given that responsibility. Why? Because the daughter has already shown to some degree poor decision making. And she needs a man in her life at that moment, that being her father, to step in and protect her. And God says to the dad, that's on you, dad. That's a pretty powerful thought, dad. That's a pretty powerful thought. Now, let's move on. We're going to get into some rough stuff here, right? Now, I did like the fact that if the father says no to the young man, he still has to pay. He still has to pay. All right, we're going to get into three verses here. Bear with me. Verse 18 through 20, this is what it says. Do not allow a sorceress to live. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death. And whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. Must be destroyed. Oh, yeah, man. What did y'all study about in Scripture this morning? I don't know, zoophilia, bestiality. We, yeah, Trent was really preaching the hard stuff. Listen, when I was reading this, when I'm preparing this stuff, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, man, how do, I, what, what, how do you pull out of that, man, and give that to the people of God and say, man, take that into your spirit and let that build you up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, uh, pull a sermon illustration out of that. Okay, since you asked, I will. The word sorceress is actually translated, when it's translated into the Greek, which is the Septuagint, and then the New Testament, which is in the Greek. It's kind of odd, the word that is used for sorceress. It is the word pharmakos, pharmakos. It is the same word that we derive the term pharmacy from, meaning drugs, potions, mind-altering things. And I do want to say something to you because there's a stepping process here. You see this, this, this decline in, in how it takes place. And you've got to get this. When he talks about sorcery, he's talking about an individual through physical, uh, psychedelic, uh, pharmaceutical means, spiritual manipulative means, dark forces, all these types of things. 
who is practicing a, 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 a given activity to seduce people away from God, to direct them to another spiritual source. And God says that individual within our camp cannot live amongst us because ultimately it's not just costing your, your, your life, it is costing your relationship with God. They are literally pulling you away through whatever means necessary to pull you in the direction of another spiritual uh, source, another spiritual uh, 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 entity uh, to engage with you. Are you, do you. Do you follow me? Let me say this to everyone who likes to uh, align themselves uh, with the, the, the group of people in the church who uh, consider themselves to be the intellectual, the biblical intellectual pursuers of, uh, of God, okay? Which, which that's all in, in play. But let me say this to you because this is true. If you think your relationship with God is just about biblical understanding and intellectual pursuit of biblical knowledge, you're missing this thing about, about 50%. Because I'm telling you, I'm getting real with you this morning. There are spiritual things out there. There are spiritual forces out there. If you think there's not evil in this world that we're combating, you have half lost this battle. If you think that you can simply reason with people who are entrenched and engulfed in evil activities, that you can just intellectually reason with people and bring them out of that, you're fooling yourself, man. You're, you're going to exhaust yourself. Because I'm telling you, there are spiritual forces that are involved and active in the life. Listen, if you think there's, I sit and watched uh, bits and clips of the young man that was beat to death in the Memphis. Man, you watch that and you think there's not evil in this world? Well, a person, for, for whatever reason, would just want to inflict that type of damage and that type of harm. I mean, unbridled anger and fits of rage. And you think there's not evil? We live in a time and we live in an age where evil abounds. And we in the church, we want to say, well, let's just go to Bible study. And that, that'll be. Listen, we need to be engaging on every front. We need to be engaging through the Scripture. We need to be engaging through the Spirit. We need to be engaging dark forces. That's what the Scripture says. That's what it says in chapter 6 of Ephesians, right? Isn't that what it says? It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. That's part of our battle. And when we disconnect from that and act like that's not part of the equation, man, we're just not engaged. And what we see is this spiraling down. You see these dark forces being introduced. These, these sorceries and magicians that we found, you know, uh, I believe in Exodus, I believe in uh, maybe in Exodus uh, chapter 7, and some of these magicians that were involved in, in, in the manipulation when God was trying to uh, liberate his children. You remember Pharaoh had his magicians. It's the exact same word that's used as sorcerers right here. Same word in the Hebrew. But whenever you engage in that type of activity, and sometimes it's by disengaging from God that you make yourself open and exposed to this nonsense that will absolutely flat out destroy your life and those around you. Watch the decline here. 
There's the introduction of sorcery. What's up next? Bestiality. What is going on? What is going on? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Trent, that's not something that really needs to be addressed with the church this morning. Uh, You know, in this culture, that's not. Let me tell you something about this culture. In the 60s, man, in the 70s, you know, we had the the sexual revolution, right? Uh, Free love, they said. That's what it was. Man, you know what we're living in, in today? We're living in a place, man, it's carnivalization. Revolution, where the, the, the sexual climate in our, in our uh, culture has become a full-blown carnival, man. I mean, they have turned the sock inside out, man. Anything goes. Anything goes. Every, nothing is beyond reproach. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I mean, everything's fair game. And we look at this and we think, man, that, that's some crazy stuff. Have you, been, have you seen TV? Have you been out? You think this is crazy? It is crazy. But this is all around us. All around us. The reason they're addressing this is because the Canaanites and the Hittites were involved in this type of activity. And it was this type of activity uh, they were involved in on on a a religious level. It was part of a religious activity. Well, the Canaanites and the Hittites were under the control and under uh, the umbrella of the Egyptians. So more than likely, God isn't just speaking to this for no reason. They'd probably been brought out of this. They had witnessed this. They had experienced this. They had seen this sorcery, the magicians. They had seen some of this other sexual perversion and activity that was so degrading to the image of God which men were created in. You can can see the intentions of the enemy, right? to destroy the very essence and the integrity and the dignity of the object of God's heart, that being his creation. You can see the enemy's intentions to, 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 to diminish the value of the person, that they would engage in such activities. It's, it's a horrendous thought. And then he says this at the back end of that. He says this. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord must be destroyed. You see how they're all connected? The reality is that that actually comes first. The idea of engaging a God other than the Lord comes first. Because for you to engage in the dark stuff, to embrace embrace the, the dark spiritual stuff, for you to allow that to take you down a road of perversion and distortion and insanity, the first thing that's got to go is God. You've got to displace Him. Any individual, I don't care who you are, that is embellishing themselves in activities such as this, whatever it might look like, whether, whether it be dark hearts, whether it be spiritual, you know, that stuff, whether it be sexual perversions, somewhere in that process you have dislodged God from the throne of your heart. Somewhere you have rejected God first. And that's what God is saying right here. He said, we got this going on, we got that going on. You can't have, you can't sacrifice to another God other than the Lord. You can't do this. And he's basically establishing for them, if you go down this path, this is what it looks like. And remember, remember, I've brought you out of that. Why would you go back in? 
For 400 years you cried out to me. For 400 years you pleaded for my rescuing hand. And I've delivered you from that. Why would you go back into that? But we too have been delivered from things. And if we're not careful, we have a tendency to drift right back into the things that God has delivered us from. The shame and the guilt. Reckless behavior, self-destructive tendencies and habits and whatnot that God has delivered us from. Somewhere in the process, our minds get foggy, our spirits get foggy, and before long, man, we're seduced right back into that type of activity. And God has put forth such a great effort because he loves you to reach into those dark places, Jay, and to recover us and to pull us back to himself. Why would we go back? Lord Jesus. He said in Exodus 20, verses 2 and 6, he says this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The land itself wasn't slavery. It was the things that the land consisted of that was slavery. This was part of it. Why would you choose shackles? Why would you choose bondage? When I've done all that I've done to rescue you. And then he says this, and this is a this is verse 21. It says this. Having addressed that, he says to his children, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Don't forget what I've done for you. Be compassionate. Be compassionate. And then he says this. He says, do not take advantage of the widow or the father. So you see this predatorial thing he's addressing? This stuff can't happen. Now I want you to understand that most of these laws are being directed towards the men. The men were the facilitators within this patriarchal community. They were to disseminate this information. They were the ones to lead the practice of these laws within their own home. And you'll see and you'll understand as we read this scripture how this is being addressed and directed towards the man as the leader, the responsible party, culpable. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, listen to this, I will certainly hear their cry. We could stop right there. I will hear them. When you cry out, God hears you. And he says to them, I will hear them. And my anger will be aroused. And I will kill you with the sword. Listen, your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Is he talking to wives? 
No, he's talking to husbands. He's talking about their wives becoming widows. You know what he's literally saying right there? If you take advantage, if you become predatorial against someone that is vulnerable, I will. Not that God was going to come down with a sword in his head and, 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 and smite someone. God would say to them, and he has said to us, your activities, your decision making will take you outside of the umbrella of my protection and you will be vulnerable to become the very thing that you have taken advantage of. You will be the one whose wife is vulnerable. You will be the one whose children are fatherless. God says, don't do that. Don't do that to the vulnerable. And then he says this in Exodus 22, 25 through 28. And if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy. Can I park here for a second? Listen, you, you watch a lot of these TV preachers. Anybody here watch a lot of TV preachers? I, I was going to say, if you do, you're going on my prayer list. And listen, I'm not saying that every one of them man, are crazy, but I am saying there's some on there, they're crazy. There are, Jack. And this is something you'll never hear from these TV preachers. Listen to this. If any of you lend to one of my people among you who is needy. Oh, you mean God's got people that might have needs and deficiencies? You mean because God loves me and I love God, uh, the windows of heaven aren't just going to open up and, and rain down $100 bills on me, Jeremiah? Well, he literally says right there, if, if my people, one of my people are in need, he literally, he, he declares that there is a possibility, there is potential for someone that I love, someone that is part of my family, to have a need. Now listen, there's a need meter in here too. And it's amongst his people as well. He says, he says this right here. Among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. What's he saying? Don't be a predator. Don't be a predator. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset. Now notice who the provider is. Part of God's family. And there's, eight, there's times in our lives, and I just want to encourage you, that you're going to be on this end of that equation. And Daniel, there's going to be times you're going to be on this end of the equation. There's going to be times you're the lender. And there's going to be times you're going to be the receiver within the family of God. And regardless of which end you're at in that equation, don't curse it. Because if you're the one in need, God's got a provision and he's put it in place for you. And he's actually protecting you too. And he gives clauses in which the lender is to protect the integrity and the dignity of the one in need. I don't know how you read this scripture and don't see how God's heart is so fixed on the vulnerable Greg and how he's wanting to protect you and protect me. This is what he says. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because the cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. You know what he's saying? Amongst my people, there's going to be some poor people. The shirt off their back is all they got. 
And he says to the lender, don't you keep that to the, to the degree that it would wound them and they would suffer. It's all they have to keep warm. That's what the scripture says. What else can they sleep in? And he says this, listen to this. And when they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. <laughs> We're going to close these last three verses. He says, do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. He says, do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. That's basically saying, trust me. Don't, don't, look, don't blaspheme God. Don't bless, or curse the ruler. He's established the ruler. Trust me in this. Trust me. And he says, do not hold back your offerings from your granaries or your vats. Trust me. Continue to give. Continue to serve. Continue to be generous. I'll continue to give that you might do that. Trust me that all the needs may be met regardless of where you're at in that process. And then he says this, you must give me the firstborn of your sons. Notice it doesn't say daughters. You know why? Well, they would be serving as priests. These people would be serving in the kingdom building. You know what he's saying right there again? Trust me with your sons. You know what every Hebrew mother thought when their son was born? He might be the one. He might be the one. Every Hebrew mother, when she'd give birth to a son, thought he could be the Christ. He could be the Messiah. My son could be the snake crusher. It could be him. And you know what God was saying to them, that firstborn son? Give him to me and to my service and to my purpose. And trust me that I'm allowing you to contribute to kingdom building. And he says, do the same with your cattle and your sheep, all part of the worship. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. And this is the last verse in this chapter. And this is an odd verse I'm about to read. You know, you're, you're like, man, we, we've covered uh, uh, vulnerable virgins. We've covered sorcerers. We've covered uh, bestiality. We've covered... A little bit of everything, and then we're going to close on some uh, uh, dietary statement from God. This is what it says. You are to be my holy people. God's intentions right there. He says this. So do not eat meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. Okay, Trent, close this service. fact that God would have to declare this would suggest that this was a possibility. This was something that was in play. But why would you eat a beast that has been torn apart in a, in a field? You have found a, a carcass of a, of a ravaged beast. Why would you eat it? Because they were hungry. Another thing God is saying, trust me, don't do this. And he says it for a couple of reasons. There's, there's physiological, biological reasons. 
There's the sickness, that, obviously. The bacteria, obviously. There's a lot of things in the consuming of a, of a, of a, a torn and, and uh, 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 open beast of the field consuming it. There's all kinds of issues that could, uh, that could arise from that. Negative physical implications that God's aware of that they're not. And he says, don't consume it regardless of how hungry you are. Don't do it. You say, okay, Trent, give me something. Some, other than some diet. Greg's thinking, I'm not stopping and getting that deer off the road. I'm, that's not what I'm doing. Trent, give me something out of that. What do you? Let me say this. There's times in our lives when we're really hungry, we have an appetite for something, and we consume things that aren't good for us. I mean, we do add food, right? I mean, that's... But then there's other appetites we have. You know? Emotional appetites. Relational appetites. Sometimes financial appetites. We get financially hungry and desperate and we begin to do things we shouldn't do financially. And it wounds us. And it destroys us. It compromises our ability to function in a healthy manner within the kingdom. Then there's relationship type of, of, uh, of hunger that leads us down paths where we consume relationships that are deadly because our hunger is so, we're so famished emotionally. We're looking somewhere else other than God. And all of a sudden, we're consuming that. We're consuming attitudes that put us in positions of leverage even though those attitudes do nothing but produce death over and over and over. And God is saying, feed on the things that I provide for you, sons and daughters. Do not eat things. Do not consume things. Do not have appetites for things that will leave you sick and dying. Amen. We look at God who loves us. Jay, we look at him. And we think he's just squeezing us, man. He's squeezing us and restricting us. And we view his very efforts as, 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 as confining. I'd read a short story in preparation for this message. I'd like to read it to you. Because I think this is somehow connected to a what I just shared, I think it's somehow symbolic. It says in 1981, a Minnesota radio station reported a story about a stolen car in California. Police were staging an intense search for the vehicle and the driver, even to the point of placing announcements on local radio stations to try to contact the thief. The reason for such effort was put forth wasn't the value of the car. No, it wasn't the value of the car. But on the front seat of the car, of the stolen car, sat a box of crackers that unknown to the thief were laced with poison. The car owner had intended to use the crackers as rat bait. The owner of the Volkswagen Bug was more interested in apprehending the thief to save his life than to recover the car. 
And often you and I run from God because we feel that we need to escape his, his restrictions when in fact all we are doing is eluding his rescue. And we look at God and we say to God, don't tell me what to do. Don't, tell, don't, don't draw the line in the sand. Don't establish borders. Don't restrict me. I want to be free. And the whole time God with a broken heart is looking at us and saying, can you not see I'm trying to rescue you? I'm trying to preserve you. I'm trying to promote you. No one is more interested in you and your value than God is. And we look at these things that he's established in our lives to protect us. And instead of seeing them as walls of protection, we just see them as cells, prisons that we fight, climb, claw to get over these walls thinking what's on the outside is really going to satisfy us. And the only thing that's waiting for us is torn carcasses of dead animals. And then we get out there and we consume it. And the wall of protection seems so high to climb. We can't get back over. But then there's one who climbs over. He's come over. And he's come down. And it's upon his broad shoulders, stretched out arms, that we find our way back over the wall and back into the protection of God. It's Jesus. It always has been and it always will be. A physical manifestation of the heart of God found throughout the law. All the ordinances of God scream out if you look deep enough. They all scream out, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Stand with me this morning. I'm just going to ask Carrie to come for a moment. With your heads bowed just for a moment, please, out of respect for your neighbor. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want you to consider. Do you understand how far God's gone to rescue you? In Him, there is no condemnation. In Him, there is no shame. There is no guilt. Even the boundaries and the guidelines are flavored with love and grace. Even the things that we perceive to be restrictive are marinated in His love. 
They're there to protect us. Not to cheapen our life experience. But to enhance it. That we, we, we might walk in, in the way that honors God. And in so doing, experience his response to an honorable life. A life that elevates him. A life, as he said in the last verse, you are my holy people. A life that points other people to Jesus. A life that is full of compassion. A life that wants to protect the vulnerable. A life that resists predatorial behavior and stands between victim and perpetrator in a defending posture. That's the life God has called us to. And we run from that. We run from that to what? To what? We live in a culture, man, that's upside down. And I believe when I read the scripture, God's heart is broken. For those who have rejected him, God's heart is broken. For those who have embraced things that stand in stark contrast to who God is. And our hearts too should be broken. We too should be compassionate. We should, we too should be an agent, right, of grace and of mercy. Why is that? Just like the scripture says, do not mistreat foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt because we've been there. We've been there. We too needed to be redeemed. We too needed Jesus. We too needed rescuing. We too needed salvation. They're not so much different. But I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what you've compromised on. I don't know, man. I, I, don't, I don't know what you've consumed. I don't know what the appetite is that you're fighting with, that you're suppressing. And out of nowhere, sometimes it's almost just, just out of control and it feels like it consumes you. But today you may be saying to yourself, you know, Trent, I, I'm tired of eating off that. I'm tired of eating that stuff. I'm tired of eating those meals. I want to come home. I want to climb back over the wall. I want to, I need to come back home. So what we're going to do, we're going to give you a minute. These altars are open. You can pray where you're standing. It, it makes no difference to me. But we want to give you a minute.
to respond to God if God is speaking to you this morning. If God is speaking to you this morning, this is your moment. As Carrie sings, as we worship, you respond to God, wherever that might be. In Jesus' name.